The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, it's um, my privilege this afternoon to be able to introduce uh, Bishop Michael Nazir Ali, who I'm uh, privileged to call a friend and to some degree these days a colleague because of my uh, work with the Christian Concern and the Wilberforce Academy in the UK. Let me just tell you something a little bit about uh, Bishop Michael. Um, It would take an awful long time to read all of the things that could be said about him, but a few highlights are that Bishop Michael was the 106th Bishop of Rochester uh, for 15 years, a very significant seat in the UK, in the Church of England. That was until September 2009. Uh, my friends and I in England at um, Christian Concern like to say that Bishop Michael was the best Archbishop of Canterbury that never was. Um, before this, he was uh, with the CMS, the Church Missionary Society. Um, he was General Secretary with them from 89 to 94. And prior to that, was also a bishop in Pakistan. He holds both British and Pakistani citizenship and from 1999 was a member of the House of Lords, where he was active in a number of areas of national and international concern. He has both a Christian and Islamic uh, family background, and is currently president of the Oxford Centre for Training, Research, Advocacy, and Dialogue, or Oxtrad, as we call it in England. He studied um, and researched primarily at the universities of Cambridge and Oxford. He's the author of 11 books, some of which are available today in numerous articles on mission, um, on ecumenism, and on other religions. So it's a real uh, blessing for us to have Michael here with us for this conference. He'll also be speaking at Westminster Chapel tomorrow morning. Uh, Why don't we give a good Toronto welcome to uh, Bishop Michael Nazir Ali. Well, I think it's good to have a good, warm Toronto something. <laughs> uh, but, but thank you for the very warm welcome. And I have felt warm uh, with the welcome, um, in spite of the weather, though I see that it's improved greatly outside, now that we are inside. I'm also conscious that this is a sort of double graveyard slot, because uh, not only have you had a very good lunch, well, I, I have had as well, but I'm also reaching the stage where the sort of jet lag begins to hit that time of the afternoon. So if I fall asleep, you will forgive me, won't you? Um, I'll forgive you if you do. Well, we have been privileged, I think, uh, this morning to hear uh, two very uh, distinguished and moving presentations about the nature of the gospel, the nature of the Christian faith, and... um, from very different points of view. Um, uh, Before David spoke, I was asking him, well, what was he going to say after having heard Joe? Uh, But then when he did speak, I mean, it was so imaginative and uh, so useful in opening up the book of the Revelation, so often called by academics in the West and indeed by some church leaders as the writings of a paranoid. Well, I think, David, you have shown anything but uh, how much we need uh, that vision of the author of the last book of the Bible. Thank you uh, for doing that for us. And I think we have uh, become clear, haven't we, that when we talk about the Christian faith, 
when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, we are not just talking about a faith. You know, um, the term faith community is used a great deal in Britain, uh, and everyone is thought of as equal, uh, whatever faith community you belong to. Well, the Christian faith is not just a faith uh, in that sense. Um, it is uh, also not just, as Joe has pointed out so ably about personal salvation, it is rather a worldview. It is a way of looking at the world and of looking at ourselves within that world and asking what God's purposes are uh, in such a world and with such as ourselves. So that is my point of departure, and I think if you wanted to have a sort of grid about uh, a Christian or a gospel worldview, we could say that it is about creation, it is about redemption, and indeed it is about transformation. When we um, talk about creation, of course, we are talking about an intelligible universe. Uh, a rational universe about uh, which we can say that it is uh, lawful, it is uh, predictable, uh, that is what makes science uh, possible, of course. Uh, and even when that lawfulness and predictability is disturbed, for instance, by a natural disaster, uh, it soon returns to lawfulness and predictability. And not only is it lawful and predictable, but uh, the great thing, of course, uh, from our point of view, is that it is patient of our investigation. That is to say, uh, the miracle is that uh, we can, to some extent or the other, uh, make sense of the universe. Uh, and um, uh, this is something that is not uh, so often commented upon, but I think it is... Uh, worth noting uh, at this stage. Uh, and this um, is relevant to the point being made about multiverses. I mean, multiverses were a pagan idea, are a pagan idea. Because if you have many gods, you have many worlds, mutually contradictory uh, and in conflict with one another. So the last desperate attempt now to get away from the what the Astronomer Royal called the seeming miracle of the universe, I asked him why seeming, uh, is, is to um, postulate an infinite number of universes of which this must be one. Well, no, I mean, this is the only universe we can possibly know. Uh, I mean, if we're going to have any kind of uh, sensible theory of knowledge. Uh, and this universe is indeed a universe that is characterized by lawfulness and predictability. Uh, more about that uh, in a moment. This universe, this world in which we live, uh, our human societies also are not as they were intended to be. So that is where redemption comes in. Um, creation and redemption, I'll say a little bit more about that uh, later. And um, as both our speakers have pointed out, uh, we are not talking about escape from this God-given world, but its redemption and its transformation according to God's purposes. 
Now, a great deal can be said about all of this, but um, what I want to begin with is uh, what is at the heart of this biblical worldview, which is a biblical anthropology. So much of what has gone wrong recently in many of our societies uh, has to do with a defective anthropology, sometimes accidentally defective because people have not considered this or that aspect of human nature, but sometimes I have to say deliberately misleading, uh, where figures are massaged, uh, evidence is manipulated to produce a view of human nature uh, that isn't in fact uh, authentic. So to have a properly biblical anthropology must be a starting point for the church in her engagement uh, with society, with the world at large. And if we uh, talk about a properly biblical uh, anthropology, uh, what are we saying, uh, first of all? We are talking about uh, the creation of human beings in God's image. Um, that has several consequences. As soon as we say that human beings are made in God's image, we are saying, first of all, that they are agents in this world. That is to say, uh, they can make real change uh, happen in this world. Not, of course, as God does, uh, because uh, we are limited beings. Uh, he is infinite uh, and omnipotent, but we can really change the world. And if we really are agents, then that uh, involves uh, a certain amount of freedom for us to act and therefore responsibility. If we are free to act, even in a limited way, then we are responsible for our actions. And so the, the whole idea of conscience, of the internal forum, um, comes uh, to the fore. Um, also, if human beings uh, are like that, then uh, it is important for them to consent in terms uh, of how they are governed, what society they belong to, uh, what their contribution to any culture is. But you will note that in the Genesis account of uh, humans created in God's image, Man and woman are created together. Yeah? Uh, this has several implications, of course. Uh, it means that you are not talking about monadic individualism. The individual is not prior to society. In that sense, Christians cannot be social contractarians. You know, society is given from the very beginning. Man and woman created together, uh, that means uh, men and women are similar. We can't say men are from Mars, women are from Venus. They're not two different species, though it may seem like that uh, from time to time to each side. Uh, they are similar. They are both made in God's image, both made together, and both given a common mission. The two mandates have been mentioned already, the one to populate the earth 
and the other the cultural mandate. Now, uh, this is the point, although they are similar, they're also different. So they each fulfill these mandates in their own way. I mean, this is obviously the case with populating the earth. The way in which uh, women have a role in this is quite different uh, from the role that men have in it. But this uh, can also be true of uh, every kind of human activity. Uh, one of the great lies, well, there are lots of lies that are told about this, but one of them is uh, that um, men and women are interchangeable in the business of fulfilling these mandates. And we will hear more and more about this lie of interchangeability. So they are similar, they are equal, they're both made in God's image, they're both given a common task, but they fulfill that task each in their own way. I sometimes tell the story of a South African archbishop who was very shy, he was also celibate, uh, and he was asked to address the mother's union. So he was very nervous, and he wanted to put them at their ease because he thought they might be nervous as well. And so he said, ladies, uh, underneath this cassock, you and I are exactly the same. <laughs> um, well, that's not the case, is it? So, <laughs> now, well, I'm not wearing a cassock, but if I had been, <laughs> it wouldn't be true, would it? Um, <clears throat> so, um, the idea that um, a man and woman come together to fulfill the mandate, for instance, uh, the family mandate to populate the earth, well, of course they do in their own distinctive ways. There is a proper complementarity here which leads to the permanence of the union. This is why same-sex marriage uh, will lack that complementarity which makes for the permanence. It also lacks, for example, in, its, in the possibility of procreation. Um, so it does not fulfill in any way uh, what is demanded of in that first mandate to populate the earth. The, the population of the earth is another area where a great deal of falsehood uh, has been uh, put about. Uh, all sorts of alarmist pictures of population explosions and so forth. And what in fact we've had is China now limping along after its one-child policy. It will not be able to sustain its uh, care for its older people and even its industrial growth because of this policy of not populating the earth. Now, I am not saying that this is a free-for-all. Of course, uh, couples need to be conscious of the common good and of their own welfare in deciding the size of their families. But having children is a good thing. Uh, I sa said this once, by the way, in, in an obscure diocesan newspaper. And before I knew it, the whole thing had gone viral. Uh, the world over, Jermaine Greer was jumping down my throat and you know, all sorts of things were happening. I said, well, what have I said? What nerve have I touched? And it was this lie that populating the earth is not a good thing. Uh, but from the Bible, of course, we know that it is. And then the other mandate, of course, is the cultural mandate. Um, a culture can be thought of certainly as externalized religion. It can be thought of as how we interact with our environment or how our environment uh, impacts on us. 
it can be thought about, as the Second Vatican Council said, about the refining of human endowments, uh, physical, uh, mental, and spiritual. Uh, all of those uh, things we can say, and uh, we must also say, mustn't we, that uh, in the fulfilling of the cultural mandate, uh, what we are doing is bringing out the possibilities that there are in the world around us, but also in bringing out the possibilities and developing them which are in us. So it is uh, development, as it were, both of the person uh, and of our immediate uh, human and material and social environment. Now, um, I think that'll keep up the, the, the caffeine, you see, that's fine. Water doesn't have caffeine. Um, more's the pity. Um, there are, in this uh, biblical anthropology, there are a few things to note because they are of relevance. Uh, one is uh, what you might call the inalienable dignity of the human person. This uh, kind of dignity cannot be established without an appeal to a transcendental principle. It cannot simply be uh, established by uh, a utilitarian inquiry. Uh, in fact, if you engage in that, you might end up with singers uh, charged, uh, really, uh, to most human societies of speciesism. You know, if human beings are not made in God's image, then of course they are just another kind of animal. And why should they be preferred to any other kind of animal? But it is because of the biblical teaching that they are made in God's image that they have a dignity that cannot be taken away from them. Some years ago in the British Parliament, the, the government had brought uh, forward a bill which was initially called the Mental Incapacity Bill. Then uh, somebody pointed out that this was somewhat infelicitous as a, as a title. So they changed it to the Mental Capacity Bill. Same bill, same content, different title. That's what governments do. Anyway, we were having a, a pre-legislative meeting about this. And a leading uh, British philosopher who is behind quite a lot of liberal legislation uh, that has happened in Britain in the last 30 years, uh, she said, uh, oh, she said, uh, but you can never take away this dignity from people, uh, whatever their mental state. Uh, so I said, oh, uh, on what do you base uh, such a claim? And she said, um, slightly embarrassed, uh, she said, well, it's the Judeo-Christian idea, isn't it, that uh, we are made in God's image? So I said, well, yes, I believe that. I'm delighted to hear you say that you believe it also. Uh, the point is that you reach a stage, even in the process of legislation, where you have to appeal to something that is not merely mundane, that is not merely about opinion polls and focus groups, but has to have a reference beyond and inalienable dignity certainly is that. Uh, and uh, it is very arbitrary in our societies to attach it to some people and not to others. To attach it uh, to a baby uh, newly born, but to deny it to a baby not yet born. Uh, it is wrong for them uh, to attach it 
uh, to an elderly person before someone decides that they can be polished off. You can call it assisted dying or uh, voluntary euthanasia. Now, of course, involuntary euthanasia in the Netherlands. But this is just arbitrary. I mean, this is not inalienable dignity which human beings have and which other human beings cannot take away from them. Secondly, equality. I don't know about Canada, but in Britain there are lots of people beavering away in the equality industry. Um, and um, uh, some years ago we set up an Equality uh, and Human Rights Commission. And uh, I received an invitation to go and address them. So I said to my secretary, there must be some mistake. Uh, I'm not the sort of bishop who would be asked to address inequalities and human rights commission. Uh, so she checked. She said, no, bishop. She said, no mistake. You, it's you. So anyway, I went and I found loads of uh, very well-meaning people beavering away at, uh, in the equality industry. But of course, they don't know why human beings are equal. I mean, on the face of it, human beings are not equal, are they? Um, whether in terms of physical endowment, I mean, I, I couldn't uh, win a 100-meter race. Or he, uh, Andrea runs these marathons. Well, I, uh, at Christian Concern, I couldn't run a marathon. Um, I couldn't win a Nobel Prize for physics or chemistry or even economics. Um, it's amazing how people win these prizes. Um, you know, people have different mental, physical, um, social uh, endowments. And on the face of it, they're not equal. So why do we say they are equal? And again, this is something where we have to go back to the Bible. We say they're equal because of common origin. Common origin. Um, when I was the General Secretary of the Church Missionary Society, I used to read what 19th century CMS missionaries did. I mean, they did some you know, amazing things. And I was reading about uh, these Australian uh, CMS missionaries in Australia uh, whose task was to go from settler town to settler town preaching the gospel. And I discovered that uh, quite often they were being run out of these settler towns. But what were they doing? Why was the gospel so unpopular amongst these early settlers in Australia? Well, I discovered that they were preaching from Acts chapter 17. You know, this is Paul at Athens. Um, where Paul is speaking to the Athenians and he, he says that he's, preaching, uh, to the, he's uh, uh, preaching to them about uh, the God who has made uh, out of one blood all the nations of men. That's the old translation. Out of one blood hath he made all the nations of men. Of course, the settlers didn't like that. They didn't want to think that they were of the same blood as the aboriginals whom they were trying at that time to exterminate. So they were run out of town. Surprised to pay for preaching the gospel in your situation, whatever situation it may be, common origin. Um, <clears throat> Darwin actually was very worried about the effects that his, uh, uh, the origin of the species would have on questions of race to such an extent that he gave large amounts of money uh, to people in North America in the struggle against slavery. 
Well, I think he was right to be worried because Darwinian ideas were used later on uh, to promote racism uh, in the southern United States and later on, of course, in the context of European fascism. Um, so if we are talking about equality of any kind amongst human beings, it has to be based on the Bible's idea of common origin. Thirdly, liberty. Um, the uh, narrative of the Bible can be thought to be about creation, redemption, transformation. Uh, but another very important trajectory that runs through the Bible is that of liberation, isn't it? I mean, the Exodus uh, story, the liberation of slaves, uh, freedom for those who are enslaved. And this has appealed to many oppressed peoples uh, in many parts of the world, not least here in North America. Um, Jesus, uh, in his own ministry, never coerced uh, a response from anyone. Uh, the early church, in its first um, 400 years or so of existence, um, lived as an oppressed and persecuted minority, as the church still does in many other parts uh, of the world today. Uh, the reformers, uh, one of their great concerns uh, was, as you know, that everyone should be free to read the Bible. You know, as uh, Tyndale said to the archdeacon, I will make sure that even the plowboy knows the Bible better than you do. You know, what a judgment that was. I was in Rome uh, in the summer, and I noticed that Pope Francis uh, had said that um, every Catholic should not only read the Bible every day, uh, but they should read it uh, as a family. And so the bookshops were selling Bibles with this quote from Francis all over Rome. And I thought to myself, if the Pope had said this in the 16th century, would there have been a Reformation? Well, we, we don't know. It's a hypothetical question, but, but there you are. Um, so uh, liberty, uh, freedom uh, of conscience, of movement, is at the heart of the Bible story about human beings. Um, Christians have not always been faithful to such a vision. I think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, pope Benedict, when he was uh, when he was the Pope, not quite sure what he is now, um, ex-Pope, um, but, but he was asked by a journalist, um, uh, for hundreds of years the Catholic Church has been saying, error has no rights. Now you are defending human freedoms. Why have you changed your mind? And he said, in this, these are almost verbatim his words, he said, in this, we've gone back to the earliest form of the tradition, the teaching of Jesus himself. Well, fair enough, uh, but that proves my point. So a, a biblical anthropology is absolutely essential for us um, in our thinking about the situation today. But when we uh, look at it, we also find how um, secularism has uh, uh, manipulated a biblical anthropology uh, very cleverly and changed it for its own purposes from what it was before. So take uh, inalienable dignity. You see, persons in the Bible 
become persons through relationship, as I've said. From the very beginning, there is a relationship, not only with God, but with one another. So what has secularism made that? It's made… turned it into autonomy, which is monodistic, individualistic, unrelated, uh, and uh, gives all the room that there can be for the exercise of hubris. Uh, equality. The Bible's view of equality is the equality of persons. And what has that been changed into? Into the equality of all sorts of lifestyles and behavior. You see, there's no end to that. There is no end to it. We will continue to get claims for equality from all sorts of lifestyles and behavior uh, now that the cat is out of the bag. Um, but the Bible's view of equality has to do with the equality of equal regard for persons. And then liberty, of course, has been turned into libertarianism. This alerts us to the fact that uh, the universe and ourselves uh, as uh, creation are not as God intended us to be. Um, we have uh, heard already this morning the cosmic uh, aspects uh, of this. This is not just about human beings. Uh, the whole universe is infected by this rebellion. And there is a, a, a principalities and powers aspect to the fallenness that there is. It's not just about humanity. But if we are going to be talking about anthropology, it certainly is about, huma uh, about humanity. So first of all, there is the fallenness. What does fallenness mean? It means at least that we are not where we should be. We are not as we are intended to be. We have slipped the moorings. We have drifted away uh, from the path we were intended to take. Um, I mean, this is very important for us uh, to acknowledge because so much of what is said about the human condition in the media today is as if we were exactly as God intended us to be. You know, this is how God has made me. How often have you heard that? Well, no, sorry. <laughs> I, I would like to say that about you and, and indeed about myself, but it's not true. We are not as God has made us. We have drifted away from that divine purpose. And then we are not just uh, fallen, but we are flawed. There is a defect in us. I, I think um, it was David who came near to describing what is meant by total depravity. Uh, total depravity does not mean that we are wholly evil, but it does mean that every aspect of the human condition, mental, spiritual, cultural, physical, relational, is affected by that fallenness. So we are, uh, in one way or another, flawed. Uh, and this is why we cannot and we do not take the high moral ground when we are talking to people, for example, about sexuality. Because we are also implicated in that fallenness of human sexuality. 
I was debating with a gay rights um, campaigner called Matthew Paris, a famous journalist in Britain. And even before the debate started, he said to me, Bishop, I know what you're going to say. So I said, well, what am I going to say? And he said, you're going to ask us to repent. So I said, yes, I'm a bishop. That's part of my job. Um, <laughs> but what is wrong with repentance? If we believe there is something to repent about. So we don't take the high ground, but at the same time, we need to point out where the flaws are. And they can be different. Uh, there is no uh, purely virtuous human being at all. I mean, that's the Bible's judgment. Uh, and um, even in the context of Christian marriage, I think Augustine is right about that, by the way, that even in the context of marriage, uh, the fallenness of our sexuality uh, can be experienced. Fallen and flawed and then enfeebled. Uh, that is to say, we are unable in our wills to do what we know what it is right to do. Yeah? Uh, the wills have been enfeebled by the fallenness, by the taint uh, of sin, of rebellion against God, of having drifted away uh, from how we were meant to be. Uh, and this, of course, has implications. I mean, this means that we, we cannot, uh, of ourselves, come back to the path that is set for us. And then we are unfree. You know, this is the paradox that we who were created free... <laughs> have become uh, in, to be in, come to be in bondage uh, so that we can no longer exercise in the proper way our freedom. Even our freedom is exercised improperly. Now, um, it is very important for us to hold um, both to, the, to our creation in God's image and to this uh, terrific uh, catastrophe that has happened uh, to human beings. Um, so what has God done? As Tom Wright says uh, so often, uh, God has set out on a story of saving human beings uh, through Israel, and I think we might add uh, coming to a culmination in Christ, a single story of salvation. That is what God uh, has done. And uh, Ronald Knox, the Oxford Poet says, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Yeah, but odd are still of those who choose a Jewish God but spurn the Jews. How odd of God. I mean, I've often pondered this with my interest in everything Middle Eastern. Here is a nomadic group of people wandering around the deserts of the Middle East, universally despised by those around them. The very word apiru, which is the origin, I think, of the word Hebrew, uh, is a uh, term of insult. It's like calling somebody a sweeper in Pakistan. You know, that's, you know, these people who are born to be slaves and servants. That's what it means. And yet God chooses them and sustains that choice uh, through the most incredible history. I mean, so many 
empires have tried to wipe out the people of Israel and have failed. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, well, etc. And they have failed. And of course, in our modern times, National Socialism. They have failed uh, to do so. Uh, this is the miracle of Israel, as George Steiner, who is himself a, a Jew, he calls it that, the, uh, the, the miracle of Israel. It is what has sustained him in his faith after the Holocaust. In doing this, then, um, God has uh, provided uh, the people of Israel with a covenant. I mean, you are people in the Reformed tradition. Uh, you know what that means. Uh, and I suppose we could say not just one covenant, but there are several covenants in the Bible, aren't there? There's the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the new covenant promised to Jeremiah, and of course the new covenant as it comes to fruition uh, in Jesus Christ and in his church. But at the heart of this covenant in the Older Testament is the giving of the law. And the law has uh, a number um, of aspects to it which may be worth mentioning. So there is uh, what you might call the civic aspect of the law. This was to organize the people of Israel, sometimes in spite of themselves, uh, into a civic, political, and social entity. Uh, there are some remarkable features uh, about the civic aspect of the law. For instance, the idea that the ruler is also subject to law. You see, in Deuteronomy 17, uh, and also in the charge that one in 1 Samuel that Samuel gave uh, to Saul and later on to David, that uh, the king is not free uh, from obligation to the law. This was, in the ancient Orient, uh, a very novel um, idea. Uh, and uh, our own ideas about a constitutional monarchy, I heard your new Prime Minister talk about his pride in the Queen of Canada the other day. Uh, well, that can only be possible because she is a constitutional monarch. You know, this is rooted in, in the Bible's idea uh, of the limitations of kingship uh, and of rulership. Um, not only that, uh, but um, uh, for instance, um, in, uh, there is also uh, in, the, in the civic uh, aspect uh, of the giving of the law, uh, how uh, uh, people are to choose their own leaders. So the seeds of democracy are to be found in these civic arrangements. And many other things can be said. But uh, what I want to note at this moment is that uh, it would be wrong for us to, to say that the civic law given to the people of Israel at that time is paradigmatic for us. We can certainly learn from it, but it is not necessary for us to imitate it. Then there is the ceremonial law how they are to worship, the organization of the cult, of the priesthood, of the system of sacrifices. Well, again, uh, there is a great deal we can learn from reverence 
uh, from uh, the, the demand to give uh, what is uh, best in our possessions. I mean, all of those things. Uh, but I think we'd be going too far if we said that we must imitate the ceremonial cult of the ancient Israelites. But then there is the moral law. And the reason the reformers, the magisterial reformers, were uh, so keen to uphold the permanence of the moral law was that it was not simply deontological. It was not simply because God says so, but because it was ontological. It had something to do with the way in which the world is and the way in which we are. You see, that, that was the reason why the moral law uh, retains its permanence. Now, um, what has happened? Um, the people of Israel uh, could not keep that law. The law is a work of grace. Uh, it was given to them uh, for direction. It was given to them so that they may determine their destiny under God. But it was found that again and again they rebelled against it. All day long have I held out my hands against a sinful and rebellious people. They could not keep the law. This is why a divine redeemer is needed. Because even the chosen people cannot do what God is asking them to do, even when what he has done for them is a work of grace. So the realization grew that the cultic sacrifices of the sanctuary were not enough. What does God desire? He desires obedience, uh, service, uh, self-sacrifice. And so in Psalm 40, for instance, we see uh, the figure emerge who says, You have given me a body. Lo, I have come to do your will as it is written of me. And in the letter to the Hebrews, there is considerable reflection uh, on the sacrifice of Jesus in the context of this um, prophecy in Psalm 40. So uh, wonderfully fulfilled. We need a divine redeemer who is not part of this uh, human condition, uh, chronically, endemically caught up in human rebellion. But of course, if he is going to be the one who begins the human story again, the another Adam, then he's also got to be human. This is what the paradox of the Incarnation is about. Fully human, but also fully divine, so that he may actually execute uh, what the divine purpose is for human beings. And so, um, Jesus, uh, in uh, offering himself up in this way, uh, begins the human story once again. Uh, the rebellion of Adam is undone by the obedience of the last Adam. 
That is what he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, the last Adam. The Adam who is to come. The Adam uh, to whom we are looking to come again as we prepare for this uh, season of Advent. He restores um, our communion with God, more precious than in Eden, as Joe was saying, I think. Um, and the human story uh, is able uh, to begin again. Now, the point is this. What then of the law? You know, salvation is not by the keeping of the law. It is by putting our trust in what Christ has done uh, for us uh, and uh, his faithfulness, uh, our faith in his faithfulness is what makes us acceptable to God. Um, not the works of the law. Well, I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? So what happens to the law? Uh, the very beginning of St. John's Gospel, it says about the Incarnation that uh, the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And just before that, it says that this was so that there may be grace followed by grace. So one work of grace is being completed here by another work of grace. To escape um, antinomianism, um, lawlessness, which is not a feature of the universe and was never God's purpose for us, what can we say about the continuing purpose of God's law for us? And there are three things, uh, and then I will uh, stop for this first part. The first is that the function of the law is to drive us to Christ. You know, what does St. James say the purpose of the law is? Uh, it is as if to look in a mirror. And what can you do? You can look in a mirror and then walk away. Well, that's a huge relief to me. Um, <laughs> or you can do something about what you see. The law is not there for, uh, to drive us to despair, but to drive us to Christ. And praise God, there is a Christ to be driven to. So Luther was in despair with the law as he knew it before he discovered the great truth of justification by faith alone. The law can drive us to despair or to Christ, but the purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. Secondly, uh, the law is a guide for the civil ordering of society. That is to say, uh, the moral law guides us into what is the social good, what is the common good, what is the public good. Uh, without that, we would be rudderless. Everything would be constructivism. There would be no sure ontological grounding in how things are and how human beings are. And then, of course, the third use of the law is as a guide for Christians. That those of us who, by grace, through faith, 
uh, have been accounted righteous by the work of Christ may become the righteousness of God, as St. Paul says. Those, I think, are the three uses of the law uh, as uh, Calvin put it. And, uh, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. I think that the whole enterprise of the Reformation would be gravely jeopardized if we neglected this continuing um, function of the law in the Christian church and in the lives of believers. Finally, I mean, this is just a note. Make of it what you will. Uh, there is a new natural law school amongst lawyers, uh, particularly in Princeton and in other places. And as I look at what they are doing, I am reminded about the realist philosophy that was current, uh, for example, in Cambridge in the 1970s and 80s under Professor Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, I had the privilege of being taught by her. She used to smoke a cigar in class. Um, honestly, I mean, those days you could. Um, uh, but she was a first-rate philosopher, and both she and Philip of Foot rooted their moral philosophy in, this, in, in a realist vision, which is what I've called the ontological. That moral philosophy has to do with how things are. It is not primarily just about language, uh, it is not simply about cultural norms. It is about how things are in themselves and what we are like in ourselves. So insofar as this new natural law school reflects that realist philosophy, I support it. But there is one caveat uh, which would make it difficult uh, for us to support it. Uh, and that is that if it was held that there can be a natural law even if there is no God. That was Grotius's claim, that even if there was no God, there'd be natural law. I would say no, there is a natural law because there is God. Uh, and that is the consistent teaching uh, of the Bible. So, uh, brothers and sisters, we are talking here about uh, the worldview of the Bible. That is... Uh, the wholeness of the gospel from creation through redemption to final transformation. Uh, without that worldview, uh, we will be unable uh, to convince our peers, our contemporaries of the truth uh, that the Bible is all about. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.